Welcome to the Property Chit Chat Podcast. I'm your host, Louise Roke, where I talk about everything and anything property. Today I'm talking to Megan Price from New Legal Law Firm. Welcome, Megan. Thank you, Louise. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, it's great to have you on board. There's always lots of questions that people want to ask solicitors when they are buying or selling a property. So I thought you were the perfect person to have on about that. First of all, could you just tell me in the audience a little bit about yourself and also explain the difference between a barrister and solicitor for the listeners? Yeah, sure. So I'm Megan. I'm a solicitor. And as you said, I run a boutique firm in central Auckland called New Legal. I'm a general practice solicitor, which means I work across several areas, including conveyancing, which is when people buy and sell property, business sales and purchases, relationship property, estate planning, and I also specialize in immigration law. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So very big portfolio. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It keeps it interesting. Yeah, definitely. So in terms of the difference between a barrister and solicitor and a barrister, in New Zealand, all legal practitioners are admitted to the High Court as a barrister and solicitor. But once we're admitted, we must then get an annual practicing certificate and we can be registered either as a barrister and solicitor or solely as a barrister. Okay. So the biggest difference is basically that barristers are lawyers who specialise in court work. And they don't tend to do transactional work, such as advising on house sales and purchases, preparing wills, forming trusts, that sort of thing. That sort of work tends to be done by solicitors, which Uh, is what I do. Okay, that's really great, actually, because a lot of people don't know the difference in them. I thought that was a question that came up. So you are a solicitor and the barristers usually are practicing cases in court. That's right, yeah. The other thing I just wanted to point out to people is, do you go to people as well? You mobile? I do, yes. Mm, yeah, that's, yes. that's quite good, isn't it? Yes. Especially if you're elderly or... Absolutely. Know, yeah. When it comes to wills or enduring powers mm. of attorney, home visits are really beneficial for clients. Mm. And I also noticed that you have your firm called New, and I just wanted to point out to people that it was N-U, not N-E-W, so it's N-U Legal. That's an unusual name. So how did you come across that? Well, there's this new type of practicing law that's going across the world at the moment, and it's called New Law, N-E-W-L-A-W, and it's all about sort of getting away from the old school way of doing things. So instead of having really high fees, it's more about transparent pricing. Yippee! (laughs) About flexibility and about utilising technology and trying to get away from paper-based processing. Right. That's fantastic. That's really good. And I must say, that is always something that does come up too, because sometimes people don't ask questions along the way, and then they're surprised that when they get a big legal bill. And that's awful. It's it's really not nice. You know, you could do fantastic work for someone, and it all be a really positive experience right till that very end point. And then, you know, it's just an awful stressful time. Yeah. And especially when you're buying and selling a property, or there might be a death or divorce or whatever, and then, you know, you've got this extra stress on top. Not, exactly. Not knowing. We're supposed to make things less stressful. Yeah, not more exactly. Stressful. I think the transparency thing these days is such a huge thing. Yeah. And talking about the lack of paper, also I, I read somewhere on your website and I thought it was a great initiative that you're doing something to enhance the environment. Yeah. Would you mind just telling us a little bit about that? Yeah, so what we're doing at New Legal is for every conveyance, so every sale, purchase or refinance, Uh, There will be a small grove of native trees planted somewhere in New Zealand, and that's through the Native uh, Tree Restoration Trust. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, Yeah, that's lovely. And so at the end of the matter, obviously some of that money will be donated to the trust, and then the clients will receive 
certificate confirming where oh, their lovely. native trees have been planted. Oh, how nice. So then they yeah. can go on holiday with their family and see their little um, yeah, grove. That's wonderful. What a wonderful idea. I thought we'd cover a few things people need to know when buying property. We've talked about fees, so that's all on your website. But what information should a lawyer look over when somebody's purchasing a property and why is it important? Well, firstly, you should obviously get them to look over your sale and purchase agreement, ideally before you sign it so that uh, we can check all the details are correct and insert any conditions that should be inserted. If you can't get the sale and purchase agreement to your solicitor before you sign it, you could put a clause in there that's a solicitor's approval clause. Yes. Yeah. And there's two different clauses, isn't there, Megan, about that? Megan's saying, okay, you really want to buy this property and you want to make sure you secure it. So you sign a sale and purchase agreement with your conditions or whatever it is. And one of the clauses that you can put in there is a lawyer's approval. But there are two different types of common lawyer's clauses. Talking about the two clauses, one is just um, to do with the title of the property to get your lawyer to look at that. But the other common one, Megan, what, what is that one? So the other common one is lawyer's approval as to the contract in all respects. So um, your lawyer can take into account the commercial and the conveyancing aspects of the agreement and any other matters which the lawyer thinks is important. Yeah, that's really great because, yeah. you know, really people should be getting legal and or technical advice before they sign anything. And that would be my preferred clause over the lawyer's approval as to title. Yes. It would be just the general lawyer's approval clause. Yeah. So real estate agents actually are supposed to say to people, prior to signing anything anyway, that they should seek legal and or technical advice if they so wish to do so. Yeah. And it and should actually be suggesting that whether or not somebody does that is up to them. But you should be advised that and you shouldn't be pushed into feeling under pressure to sign something but that just covers you so it does it does and usually you can give your lawyer um sort of maybe five working days to satisfy that clause or if your lawyer's on standby and know that the contract's coming through you might want to put maybe two or three working days instead of five and it's always a good idea to uh, keep in touch with your solicitor if you are looking at buying a property and also your mortgage broker so that you know if you want to speed things up and there's other interest on the property, that gives you a head start. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good to know. So what other things should a lawyer look over when they're purchasing, you know, when somebody's looking at purchasing a property? Well, look, on that note, obviously the title is the next big thing for them to look over. Um, The title shows who the property owners are, the legal description of the property, and also any rights and restrictions registered against the title, which is really important. In terms of conditions and any kind of specialist reports that a client wants to get, so you might have building a report or you might order a LIM from council, a land information memorandum. There might be body culprit documents if the property is a unit title and your lawyer should look over all of these. Yes. So when you're getting sale and purchase agreements, are most people these days, I mean, I'm only seeing what I'm seeing, but are you finding that in general most people are getting limbs or they should be provided most of the time? Are they provided most of the time? They are provided Mm. a lot of the time, yeah. And if they're not provided, usually that is a standard clause that people are putting in there together with the building reports as well. Yes, going to say. So most people are still getting building reports? Yes, they are. So what about the property files? Are many people looking at the property file along with the limb or what's the story there? No, no, not many 
people are looking at that, but it is a good idea to do that. And often I've found with clients, the real estate agent will often go through the property file either with the client or with the vendors just to check that everything's in order in terms of consented works on the property and that sort of thing. Yeah, we just had a good conversation with a builder the other day too who said what I always say to people is to, you know, you can go down to the council and spend time with a planner and, and go through things that you're not yeah. sure of either just to make sure everything is supposed to be like it is. Yeah. Are there any things that you've come that you come across with buyers or vendors that are sort of common problems or things that people should be aware of in general? I suppose some of the main ones that are quite easy to approach, I guess, is like just checking that your chattels are correct, you know, and making sure that any of your floor coverings or appliances or furniture that you want included in the purchase will be included. Because on that note, it's always a good idea to actually either take a photo, if it's whiteware, and Mm. note down the model and make. So it is actually the same one. That's a great idea. (laughs) The same one that is actually in the property when you get there because, you know, if it's a white Mm. fridge or whatever and then it comes to settlement. See, there's all these people who do these things out there. I mean, (laughs) to say it. But occasionally it happens and you want to make sure that, you know, if something is a chattel, that it is a chattel. Now, talking about chattels, and I know I didn't write this down on my notes, but talking about chattels, there's another thing that we probably need to point out to people is that if it is a chattel and you're selling your property, that is supposed to be actually working and all the rest of it, isn't it? So, yes, it yeah. should be in good working order. Yes, yes that's so right. So if, if you have an old beer fridge that somebody says yes. <laughs> that they want, probably you probably not a good idea to put it down as a chattel. No, absolutely <clears throat> right. That's yeah. absolutely right. And um, something which I was going to touch on a bit later was, you know, your pre-settlement inspection. So as a purchaser, you can go through the property prior to settlement and you want to be checking that all your chattels are in working order. Yeah. So how how many days normally do people do a pre-settlement inspection? Uh, What do you suggest? I would suggest at least two days before and no later than sort of maybe 10 a.m. the day before settlement. And that just gives your lawyer time to work through any issues if you do find that something's not quite right. Yeah. So basically, if there is something that is not quite right at the property that may have changed, because sometimes obviously settlement can be, you know, extended, it can Mm. be four weeks to eight weeks or whatever, you might want to just point out to your solicitor, oh, that washing machine or that tap or whatever it is. Yeah. What happens if that tap was like that when you saw the property? So it has to be in the same condition as and repair as when you agreed to purchase okay, it. Okay, that's good to know. Yeah. So ideally, I mean, when you agree to purchase it, you should be going and checking all these things before you sign the agreement. And if there is anything broken, you could discuss it with your solicitor first and we can negotiate something with the vendor's solicitor about having them fix it prior to settlement or maybe taking a little bit of money off the purchase price. So basically, it is a matter sometimes of slowing things down to just smell the roses, isn't it? Absolutely. I think, um, you know, buying a property is such a huge investment, Mm. probably one of the biggest most people do in their lifetimes, and it's exciting as well. So things get missed if you move too quickly. And uh, I think the thing is, when you're in a position, when you are doing that, paperwork at the beginning it is a good time as you said to just double check things then before you actually have completed that sale and purchase agreement just to make sure that everything is how you thought it was because sometimes you actually think things are different than what they are too absolutely so what other things have you sort of come across then Uh, in terms of common problems or things that people should be aware of 
another common problem would be your due dates for your conditions and making oh, sure okay. they all line up yes. properly. So often people, when they're buying a property, they're going to need it to be conditional on them selling their own property. Okay. And that contract in itself for their sale has its all its own conditions going on. Um, so you've got to make sure that they all marry up correctly. Because you don't want to be going unconditional on your purchase if your sale hasn't gone unconditional right. yet. Right, yeah, that can get quite tricky, can't it? It can get very tricky. And that's when you really need both of those real estate agents actually to make sure that they're sort of um, looking at the or asking the right questions or getting in touch with the lawyer and making sure that that other contract is, you know. That's that's right. Yeah. And it's not just a matter of right at the, be I mean, at the beginning, it's obviously very important to get the dates correct. But then through the conveyance as well, sometimes dates can change if people need extensions. And yes. so then you've got to consider that you've got to change all your other dates. That's right. And don't assume anything. Just no. because just if somebody asks you, if you're buying in property and you're selling your property, as Megan was saying, so you're doing these sort of double transactions to get to where you need to go. Mm. You can't just assume also that that other person, just because the person you're buying from says, oh, can you extend this? That that other person that you're selling to is going to extend it. So you can't Absolutely. assume anything. No, as I always don't say. assume anything. <laughs> you're right. going to get sick of me saying don't assume anything. But, you know, that's that's what I've, I've come to the conclusion. There's, um, there's probably one more thing yes, to I'll watch do. out yes, for please. is um, the type of land ownership of the property. Oh, okay. Yeah, because yeah. there's a few different types of land yeah. ownership in New Zealand. You've got the main ones are freehold, leasehold, unit title and cross-lease. And each imposes different rights and responsibilities and restrictions. So in particular, there have been issues with cross-lease properties. Yes, I think that's always been the funny one, isn't it? So, it is, yeah. yeah. I mean, they are quite attractive to buyers because you can get very nice properties in quite trendy locations, maybe Parnell or the city waterfront, you know, and you can get apartments and things for about half the price of what a freehold yes. property would be. But there are some issues, things like um, you'll need written consent from all the other owners before making any changes to the property, and just checking that the footprint of the property is sort of reflects what is actually on the title. So your lawyer will check all of that for you. And that's that's um, that's a, another little uh, giveaway that cross leases are, are they the only ones that are actually on the title? You know how you see a cross lease property and there's actually a little drawing. Yes. Yeah, of the building. I mean. Yeah, generally they're the yeah. ones with the little the the drawing of yes. the building. Yes. So what I'm saying is, is that sometimes people not, might not even realise because do you yeah. know that I've seen quite a few properties advertised, and I say to myself, oh, that must be a cross lease because of the price actually yeah. being slightly like you were saying, you know, yeah. but it didn't mention in any advertising that it was a cross lease. Interesting. Yes. I mean, probably if you went to the open home, no doubt it did, but yeah. just in the actual advert, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. I personally mention when something is a cross-lease. I don't know what the legalities are on that. And as I said, I didn't go to the open home, so I'm not saying that the agent hasn't disclosed it's a cross-lease. But one way you could tell, obviously, is yeah. if you've got a little picture of a square that's supposed to be the house on your title... Yeah, that is a bit of a Freehold giveaway. doesn't have that. Gen no, generally not. And um, on the front page of the title anyway, you'll see up the top, if you just read through it all, you'll see that it either says freehold or cross-lease or unit title in there as well. It'll have yeah. those words. But anyways, your lawyer should be checking yes. this all out for you. Yes. And so leasehold is another funny one too, isn't it? Yes, it is. So leasehold basically means somebody else owns the property and you're just purchasing the exclusive rights to the land and the property for a set period of time. So if you do the math for some people, it works out cheaper for them to buy leasehold 
rather than, you know, at a lower price rather than having high mortgage interest rates. But one of the sort of downfalls to it is that because you don't actually own the property, as it increases in value, you don't really have a right to that. That's the, the leaseholder that oh, okay. is getting the benefit yeah. of that. I'm yeah. not very familiar with this leasehold thing. I mean, yeah. I have seen a couple of the <coughs> memorandums that, uh, is it memorandums on leasehold? I can't remember now the, the lease details the, anyway. Yeah, the, yeah. And I've always wondered, like, I mean, they say 99 years and all the rest of it, but sometimes it's hard to see, like, what happens after that 99 years because sometimes there's no uh, leaseholder or leaseholder. Yeah, yeah. It, well, so it will um, divert back to mm. the owner. But that is quite interesting yes. because I have not seen any come around to the end of their lease term No, yet. it's been quite interesting because there must be some that are, Getting, yeah, getting maybe another of, 30 years yeah, or something. Yeah. We'll probably have some big issues. <laughs> probably. <laughs> I, we don't want to put people off out there about leasehold, but just do your due diligence and just know what you are buying. And so unit titles, obviously, with all these changes in the unit tree plan... Yes, are becoming obviously very, very common now. Yeah, they are. They are. So um, this is that's the type of ownership for apartments and units. And so you have exclusive ownership over your unit and also joint ownership with other common areas. And yeah. a good podcast actually uh, that we did was with Steve Plummer, the strata guy, I call him. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and he is an absolute expert in strata and he's always up to giving advice. He's a real advocate for oh, that. Good. So people are thinking about buying that apartment or a townhouse or something. Have a listen to that podcast. We touched on it before, but another important one to avoid issues is just to make sure you do that pre-settlement inspection. Mm, yes. Yeah, so that's a big one. And probably even before you sign the contract as well, if you could do perhaps a second inspection. So do a you know one inspection of the property to check it all out and have a walkthrough. And before you sign that contract, it might be quite good for you to have a, just have another look and familiarise yeah. yourself. That's that slowing down to smell the roses a little yeah, bit. Yeah, that is. That's so true. Because sometimes everything, like you said, it's the, um, the excitement of the time. Yeah. What happens actually, Megan, if if a vendor doesn't disclose something about a property? You that's know, there might be something that's not consented or whatever. Yeah, and that's an interesting point um, because there are a lot of vendors who are surprised when they find out that there's a standard clause in the sale and purchase agreement that contains what are known as uh, vendor warranties and undertakings. So one of the main ones is that if the vendor has undertaken any work on the property, then they've obtained the necessary consents from council and local government and that the work that has been completed is in accordance with those consents. And if required, that a code compliance certificate has been issued. Yes. I suppose... Gosh, anybody who's tried to build or renovate will know that the process of getting the plans approved by council is long and complicated and frustrating. Um, so it is quite common that property owners will do unconsented works to their property. It might be that council never finds out about those, but when they do come to selling their property one day, they'll be obliged to disclose those, yes. as you've said. So I did have a vendor client who didn't disclose that there was an unconsented sleep out sort of home office sleep out building at the back of the property and when the purchasers realized they insisted that my client remedy that which she agreed to so settlement was pushed out for a few months and while my client went through the consent process with council in the meantime the property that she wanted to buy she lost oh gosh yeah, yeah. so yeah because it's not going to be like you said if you're going to remedy something it's not going to be a quick fix no no yeah. it's not at all mm. especially through that council process i mean so what could what's some suggestion in that situation if it's a, if it's a, how big a sleep out are you talking about 10 meters sort of or something are you yeah, or, yeah, yeah smallish it was, quite, it was small yeah. it was small in that sort of situation probably she would have been better off doing what we could have negotiated a reduction in the purchase yes. price in that 
instance, the purchasers didn't want to negotiate that. Otherwise, of course, we would have pushed for that so that she could get on and purchase her own property. So, yeah, it's not always the case that the no, purchaser... And, and I was through. going to suggest too that if she, you know, prior to her putting it on oh, the market, of course. Yeah. if she had said, look, this is not consented, uh, you could have done a clause up to cover that couldn't you oh absolutely absolutely and I mean ideally that's what you should do it should have been disclosed in writing but we weren't made aware of that prior to the contract so what I'm saying is to people listening out there look if you have done something (laughs) (laughs) it's not the end of the world don't panic no (laughs) we we can get around it the whole thing is is to be transparent and to say to your agent listen I've done this and I didn't get consent for it So we know straight up how we're going to approach it and your lawyer will obviously know how to approach it as well. It's not the end of the world, but you're going to get into a tricky situation and everybody's going to get into a tricky situation and and it's not not nice when you haven't disclosed something and then Mm. it just gets bigger than what it needs to be and and it's just hopeless actually. Yeah, and it's already a stressful situation. Why make it more stressful? Because there's ways, like Megan said, Okay, so she could have done a clause, put it in any sales and purchase, the clause would have gone in and -hmm. it would have said, you know, the buyer is aware and accepts and acknowledges that this sleep out situated on the eastern side of the house or whatever is unconsented and Mm -hmm. will be remaining as such and take no responsibility, that type of thing. I mean, okay, you're probably looking at my clause thinking, my God, (laughs) that's shocking, but do you know what I mean? It's roughly that, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. The other thing she could have done is the agent could have suggested, well, look, why don't you get rid of it? That That's is the other, the other option. As long as you are disclosing and as long as a purchaser is aware, that can be solved. The lawyer and a good real estate sales consultant can think about solutions to problems. That's mm. right. And the whole point of the transaction is to get it through because everybody wants it to work. Exactly. So it's not about having arguments or making things difficult. Exactly. It's about working together and getting the job done. What should people look for prior to settlement? And we talked about this a little bit and we talked about the pre-settlement inspection. So just make sure really that you do get it and then what, notify you? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So inspect the property one to two days prior to settlement. Check that the general condition of the property is the same as when you agreed to purchase it. Keep in mind, it's not uncommon for damage to be caused by moving. So check, you know, that there's no new holes in the walls or in the doors. You should check that all the chattels are there and are working, as we discussed before. For example, the garage remotes. Oh, yes. Very annoying if that went missing. And the other thing as well is often as part of negotiating the initial contract, purchasers will require vendors to do some repairs or maintenance to some aspect of the property. Um, So you want to go and check that that's been done prior to settlement as well. And if you're buying a knockdown, don't expect that to be happening. (laughs) Yeah, no, exactly. (laughs) And if you do discover any problems, let your lawyer know and then we'll be able to sort it out with the vendor and advise you the best way forward. Yeah. So talking about knockdowns, actually, we're just diverting a little bit here. I mean, I know in the old days, and I don't think it's used anymore, but just say there's a property which has got an old ramshackle of a house and it's basically land value and the person's going to come in there and, you know, knock Mm -hmm. it over. Just so the vendor can protect themselves, that the person doesn't turn around and say, oh, I want this fixed and this fixed. Mm. They used to use as is, where is, but I don't think that's the correct thing now, is it? Have you come across anything that they use as a common clause these days? I do. I'll just find it for you, Louise. Yeah, sure. So basically, if somebody is buying an old shack, say, and the Mm -hmm. vendor is selling it and they're saying, look, 
specifically this is really more or less land value and I'm not interested in cleaning, tidying, you know, fixing mm-hmm. anything up because mm-hmm. it's an old shack. You can fix it up if you want to, but I'm not going to be responsible for any of this maintenance it needs doing and it's more or less as is, where is. Now, what, how can the vendor protect themselves that the person's not going to come along and say, oh, this is, needs fixing and that needs fixing? Um, so speak to your lawyer again about that and they can go through the standard warranties and undertakings and just cross some of those out for you. Yes. Yeah. And talking about standard warranties and undertakings, mm. I'm just thinking of the standard warranties and undertakings. Like you said, that they haven't done anything non-consented on the property. Yep. So also a couple of others. that they haven't received any notice or demand um, from any local or government council. So e.g. what, that they haven't paid their rates for three years? Yeah, yeah, mm. that's one. Or maybe they haven't received a notice that they need to fix something on the property. And that would normally be on the limb, wouldn't it? Is that correct? Or would you need to look at a property file for that? The limb doesn't always contain everything. No. So you might want to look at the property file. Yes, and I think that's a good point to point out, actually, that the limb doesn't contain everything. No, it doesn't. So you do have to watch out for that. But, you know, as we were just saying, it is a warranty and undertaking that the vendor discloses anything outstanding. So they should be telling you in writing yes. anyway if they have had a notice from council to do something or not do something or yeah. fix something on the property. Or Now, okay, so the property's settled and the person selling the house isn't ready and is still packing up. Settlement happened at one o'clock and they're still there at five. Does this it's, happen? It does. And it happens quite a lot. I know. We experienced it once. Gosh, it was fun. Yeah, it's not it's not a nice situation no. to be here. So people do find themselves waiting in their moving truck outside their new home while the old owners are still moving out. And usually it just means that it's going to be a longer night of yeah, unpacking. Yeah, there's not a heck of a lot you can do about no, it really, is there? No. no, not unless it goes overnight to the next day. Yes. And then you can charge penalty interest and also reasonable expenses for accommodation and storing your belongings. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, that's good to know. So some lawyers were asking real estate salespeople to do a final inspection on behalf of the vendor. Purchaser. Is it purchaser? Sorry. What advice do you have to those real estate um, consultants listening? Should they be doing that? Well, (laughs) I usually work for the purchaser in this situation. So I want to say that from the purchaser's perspective, if there's no way they can do the inspection and they can't get a family member or friend to go and do it, then I would So we're having a debate here, you see, because Megan's (laughs) representing the purchaser and I'm representing all you poor real estate agents, uh, sales consultants out there. And I I know what you're saying. Yeah. But I will say that it is a tricky situation because we're working for the vendor. So just make sure you don't put yourself really in any... um, That's right. And, you know, from an agent's perspective... I do feel that by doing the inspection on behalf of the purchaser that you're opening yourself up to yes, some risk. exactly. If it was me, I probably yeah, no, wouldn't that's do right. it. That's right. I mean, look, maybe you could take a photo of something, you know, but don't comment on it. That's a photo of what I saw. But just right. think about things like that. Who are you getting paid by and you're getting paid by the vendor? That's right. What rights do people have if the owner has left the property and has left a lot of rubbish on site and the settlement has occurred? Is there anything that they can do? Yeah, so the vendor has to hand the property over with vacant possession. And so if there's a lot of rubbish left over, it could be said that it's not vacant possession and they're responsible for coming back and getting rid of that. Hopefully you would pick this up in the pre-settlement inspection. Yes. Um, But if settlement's taken place, 
really you've just got to work with your lawyer to either try and recover some kind of funds from the vendor to cover paying for the rubbish removal yourself. It's important to note though you know, rubbish removal and cleanliness are two different things. Exactly. And that's a really yeah. good point that you pointed out. So just go into that a little bit more. So in terms of cleanliness, while the vendor has certain obligations to ensure the property is in the same condition as when they agreed to purchase it, um, there's no general obligation on the vendors to deliver the house clean and tidy. So although that seems like the decent and proper thing to do, it's not usually a term of the yes, agreement. Yes, because what somebody classes as clean and tidy Absolutely. might be completely different for somebody else. Yeah. And if that is something that's really important to you, you can speak with your lawyer about that before you sign the agreement. And you know, we could draft up some kind of clause in the agreement that says it needs to be professionally cleaned prior to For four hours or something. Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah, it's a good idea. The other thing is to point out that if you've come along and you've done a pre-settlement inspection, say two days before, and you notice that there's a hell of a lot of rubbish on the property, well, (laughs) from experience, I'm saying to you that it might be a good idea to go back to the agent and just make your solicitor aware as well and say, listen, I did notice that there was about four trailer loads of rubbish still at the property and that's going to settle in two days, so what's happening about it? That's right. And get the ball rolling because maybe you should go back again that's right and then we you know as your lawyer we would want written confirmation from the vendor's lawyer confirming when they've gotten rid of that rubbish yes and then we wouldn't settle until we've got your go ahead that's good because I tell you what even though some people tell you something it might not necessarily happen so I'm not going to use the a word again (laughs) (laughs) assume 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 but that's the story so you really if there is something like that you really need to go along yourself and check it out What sort of things can go wrong at settlement? One of the main ones could be that the contract just isn't written correctly. So if Mm. there's something a little bit more complicated than usual. So I had a client that was buying two neighbouring properties because he wanted to create one residence. So he obviously, they were interlocking agreements essentially and and were reliant on each other. Right. You know, so he didn't want to buy just one property. He He wanted wanted to to do the two. He didn't see us before he signed the agreements. Oh, okay. And so they weren't really reliant on each other at all. And so he nearly had to buy one property and not the other, but we managed to negotiate (laughs) out of that, which was lucky. Oh, gosh. (laughs) But it would have been easier if we had have seen the contract first. Another one is just making sure that It seems obvious, but just Mm. don't satisfy a condition until you're absolutely ready. So I know you really want the house, but if you haven't got written confirmation from the bank that you've got finance pre-approved. For that particular property too, isn't it? Exactly. And don't satisfy the finance condition because, you know, you just can't assume that everything's going to happen for you. And also, if the bank has given you XYZ amount three months ago or two months ago or whatever, that doesn't necessarily mean that for this particular property that you're buying that they're going to say yes to it. They might say, well, actually, no, that seems way overboard because they can actually get a valuation done, can't they too? Some banks do require that. Yeah, that's right. So you don't know if that's going to be part of it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So just that would be, be a pretty yeah horrific situation. Yes. Yes. It can be horrific, and it has happened. Oh gosh. So what happens in that situation if somebody actually hasn't got the finance and they say yes, they have? They're up for a lot of money because oh, they have to gosh. go through the agreement, mm, and then there'll mm. be penalties, penalties, and, and all that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. Hideous. Yeah. It can be very expensive. Yeah. Talk yeah. to your lawyer. Yes. <laughs> what else have you seen? Anything? Another common one would just be on settlement day. 
most of the time people are waiting for money to come from the sale of their own property and for the sale of that property the purchaser is waiting for money of their own yes. so it's like a domino effect so a lot of the time on settlement day it can get quite stressful because your lawyer can't give you an exact time that settlement's no, that's going right. to take place which is frustrating for you as the client because you've got a van full of furniture and nowhere to live and you just want to get in there and get it done so that's the most common people don't sometimes realize how that all works yeah exactly and, and also the other thing is you need to make sure that you have arranged with your real estate salesperson to have the keys and an actual fact the salesperson shouldn't be handing over any keys until settlement has taken place and they have that in writing from the solicitors that's right so as soon as settlement has taken place your lawyer will contact the other side to let them know and the agent as well and give them you know written instructions to release the keys yeah it'd be good any lawyers listening out there that if you could actually tell the sales consultant as well it's always quite handy (laughs) (laughs) saves us a lot of stress too have you got any overall tips for people when they're buying and selling from what we've discussed Oh, just the main ones we've discussed. So get pre-approval on finance, get your solicitor look to look over the agreement before you sign it or insert a solicitor's approval clause. Do your pre-settlement inspection and do it properly and be organised with your conditions and make sure you work with your solicitor to satisfy them on time, but not too early yes, if you're not ready. That's great advice. Thank you. Now, we're going to just talk about anti-money laundering, which is a new thing that's come into New yes. Zealand law just recently. So it it's, you'll see it as an acronym, AML. And so if you see this AML around everywhere, that's what that is talking about. Can you just tell us how did this come about that New Zealand needed this AML? Gosh, we're sounding like we're in a... You know, yeah. little little old New Zealand now has to worry about this. So what's the background on that? Little old New Zealand, well, there was a report from the Ministry of Justice from October 2017 that estimated that about $1.35 billion from fraud and illegal drugs is laundered through legitimate businesses in New Zealand Amazing. each year. $1.35 billion. Is that since 2017? I'm not sure if it's since 2017, but the report was from wow. 2017. Wow. So okay. it would have been It'd be interesting to know if that was annual or whether that was, I mean, it's only two years ago anyway. So a, Yeah, no, that was annual. Oh, well, that was annually. Year. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So in light of How that. How sad. Yeah, it is. So in light of that, um, the government has enacted anti-money laundering legislation, along with a lot of other first world governments as well. Yeah, so it's very interesting. So what does that mean for people buying and selling property? It basically means that your lawyers are going to have to do background checks on you. So we have to check your identification. So uh, we might or we will need, say, your driver's license or passport, proof of address, perhaps your credit card. And then if you're purchasing the property as well, we might even ask you where you have got your funds to purchase the property from. Right. So you might have to provide some original documents, proof. To say proof, you know, of prior sale and purchase agreements. If you're a business owner and have a lot of revenue coming in, then we might want to see tax statements and that oh, sort yes. of thing over the last few years. So is a lot of onus put on the solicitors to make sure that they're actually doing their due diligence on people? Absolutely. Yes. It's our responsibility. Okay. That's good. I was wondering if, about that. If we're not satisfied, then we can't act. So what paperwork, what do they need to fill out? In the initial stages, we have paperwork that we need to fill out, but your normal sell and purchase there's not really any forms that they would need to complete we just need to witness your id and be satisfied and and compare it obviously with you do they have to actually come into the office or 
So we either need to witness the ID and compare the photo photograph with the person right. that we're looking at to make sure it's the same person, or they need to send in certified copies. Oh, okay. So, so they, they go could, down to a justice of peace or something. That's like that. right. That's right. But we need to see, receive those original certified copies in the post before we start acting. And then if there's anything, sus- I mean, that's not just a hard and fast rule. Mm. If there's anything suspicious happening, then we might have to do some extra checks might not seem like such a big deal for an individual person or a couple buying a property, but if it is a company or a trust that's buying a property, it becomes quite a big task doing all these background checks because we have to do the background checks on every single person associated with that entity. So for a company, it's all the directors and all the shareholders. And if it's a trust, it's all the beneficiaries and all the trustees. And sometimes there's 10 or 20 beneficiaries and we can't officially start working on your matter until we've got all the verified ID for every single person, which is all the more reason to contact your lawyer before you actually put an offer in mm. on the property mm. so that you can get everything ready and your lawyer can hit the ground running as soon as you've got a contract. On so court. on a sale and purchase agreement, there is something that's called and or nominee. So if somebody puts their name down and says they're buying it as an individual and mm. then it comes to just before settlement and they tell their lawyer that they're changing that into a, a trust or a company, what, what happens there then with all these checks? Gosh, that's a bit um, yeah, frazzled for you. <laughs> that is, that's a good point. And yeah, we would just have to do the checks because we couldn't agree to act for that new entity until yes. we So that's probably a good point to tell people checks. if they are thinking about changing it prior yeah. to settlement, which just often happens. You need to really get your ducks in a row. Usually clients do bring that up in the beginning. When you have your first couple of meetings, usually people are pretty good and do discuss those things. Everybody has to do this AML paperwork. Everybody does. So it's a matter of changing things now because you will need to get in touch with the lawyer sooner rather than later, actually. Yes. So it is an ideal time to get your personal affairs in order and ensure that, you know, your investment is going to be adequately protected. Ideally, you keep your will updated at least every five years or when there's been a big change in your life. Maybe um, one of your beneficiaries has passed away or there's been new children born in the family, that sort of thing. It's a good time to get your will updated. That's a good point, actually. Just because you've made one doesn't mean that, you know, there haven't been changes and you need to That's right. And actually, I should have mentioned marriage Mm. or divorce as well as a big, big one. You definitely should. Definitely need to change it again after that. Yeah. In addition to a will, you might also want to consider a family trust um, and whether that would work for your circumstances. They can be particularly helpful for protecting assets if you run a business. If you're in a relationship, you might want to consider a contracting out agreement or otherwise known as a prenup. Oh, okay. Contracting out agreement. Oh, okay. That's interesting. So that's, yeah. a, that's another word for it. Yes. And that's, that is quite important because, I mean, if you're a single person, if you've got a partner and you're buying a property in your own name, you want to make sure that that's going to be protected. Yes. And I future. just heard recently that property uh, law with couples might be changing. As far as I heard something on the news the other day about not necessarily it's going yes. to be 50-50, it's going to be more recognizing you know what came into because let's face it these days divorce Mm -hmm. rates are so high and the nuclear family is so sort of different these days you know people have got children or sometimes children from different partners and they're coming together and buying property so it gets quite complicated doesn't it it does and I'm really looking forward to seeing what those changes might be that's really good I think it is it's very outdated so it does definitely need to be brought up to speed Talking about wills, why is it that some people have wills in place and then when they die, the family can overturn the will? 
Like, what is the point of a will? (laughs) (laughs) It's only in specific circumstances. If a specific family member hasn't or felt they haven't been provided for, then they might be able to contest a will. Or if there's some relationship issues, that sort of thing. So it's very specific circumstances. I read a statistic once. I couldn't find a statistic for New Zealand, but in Australia in 2017, there were 27,287 wills for people that passed away. 26,314 of them were uncontested and only 973 of them were contested. So that was a 96% chance that your will wouldn't be contested and a 4% chance that it would. They didn't say the outcome from those 4% though? No, uh, no, okay. it Because that would have been interesting. It would, yeah, yeah, that would have yeah, been interesting because yeah. not all of those would have gone through. No. And you've got to remember to contest a will is an expensive process in itself and yeah. there's no guarantee of success. So even if somebody does have a claim, they might not know they have a claim or they might just not want to go through the stress of it or they might not have the money to get a lawyer and go through that whole process. And power of attorneys was the last thing that we had down here. Yeah, so with the power of attorney, you can decide ahead of time who will make decisions for you and about you if you become mentally or physically incapable. Well, it's a big thing these days, isn't it? Because you've got so many elderly people, we're all getting older. That's right. So there's two types, isn't there? Is that right? Yeah, there is. So there's an enduring power of attorney for your personal care and welfare. And then the second one is for your property, which is your money and your belongings. Right. That sort of thing. So you can get both or just one or the other. They're quite simple documents to put together, usually about $300 and $350 each. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah, so it's, I mean, I think it's really worthwhile having that in place. So basically, just for the people who are wondering what we're talking about, just give me an example of like for a power of attorney for property. So if you become mentally incapable of handling your own affairs, perhaps you end up in hospital, um, in a coma, I don't know, something like that. The doctor will write a certificate saying that you're not capable of making your own decisions and then your attorney will be able to go and deal with your property. So they'll be able to go access your bank accounts, pay bills as they're needed, maintain your house, sell the house if they need to, to pay for your care. Right, so you've really got to choose carefully who oh, you definitely, are having. Definitely. And do most people just have one person or do they have joint people to do this power of attorney thing? Um, for property, often people will have joint and for your personal care and welfare, you can only appoint one person at a time. Oh, that's interesting. You can appoint backup attorneys as well. So if one person is unable or unwilling to act, maybe it's too stressful for them, then you might have your backup attorney. So yeah. you might have your partner as your main attorney and then your adult son or daughter as your backup. So do you think they've done that health one, one person, because there's so it's many quite things emotional, that ha- yeah, I was going to say, and families yeah. and one person would want something done and the other person would I'd want... I'd say so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, I'm sure that so many people have got such a lot of information that we've covered and we have covered quite a bit today about property and that. Yeah, thank you so much. And so what is your website that people can look at, Megan? Um, So it's New Legal. So it's www.nulegal.co.nz. You can look on there and you can find your contact details and all the rest of it. And thank you very much. I've learned something and I'm sure people out there have. Thank you so much for having me, Louise. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Property Chit Chat. Subscribe to hear all our episodes. If you want further information, visit goodtonic.co.nz and hit the Property Chit Chat tab. Till next time, over and out.